Hey everyone, welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here with two of our Nexon Pruitt Healthcare Practice Group members today. Matthew Roberts, thank you for joining us. Dara Coleman, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, these two and the rest of the Next Improved Healthcare team have been working nonstop since the pandemic began. I've watched them, and we're going to talk through some issues for 2021. They've produced this great document on the top 10 healthcare issues to follow in the Carolinas this year, and so let's talk through a couple of these. Uh, we, we need to begin with COVID, right? All things right. COVID and the vaccine. Dara, what can we look forward to in 2021? I think one of the most exciting things that we can talk about right now and look forward to is an expansion of access um, to vaccination. We can look forward to um, a progression in the categorization of folks who are eligible to have access to the vaccines. We've recently seen an expansion um, just this past week in South Carolina with the passage of um, Joint Resolution um, 3707 with um, different folks who can offer the vaccine. One of the things that's also very interesting in our state is who can serve as the um, chief medical officer for vaccination sites. It's not just a physician. It can be a pharmacist, a PA, or an APRN. So if you're looking to serve as a vaccination site, you have lots of options with your healthcare staff. And that's something that has been very valuable to our clients to make sure that they're not limited in their choices if they want to pursue that as an option. We've had clients who have kind of pivoted their business model um, to ensure that they can serve in that capacity. I think that is something that is going to be very interesting in the next six months, both in North Carolina and South Carolina, to see folks um, roll up their sleeves, both to receive the vaccine and also to offer it um, as injectors. And I think an additional outgrowth is going to be in the public education sector as we try to overcome concerns and stigma that still exist in the minds of folks who have reservations about getting the vaccination, whether it is the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine that's already there or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that's on the horizon for March. Um, we have heard prediction that we may have 20 million um, vaccines available from Johnson & Johnson in a month, which is very exciting news, but it doesn't matter if people aren't willing to get the, the vaccine. So we still need to educate folks. And based on what our guests have told us recently, there's lots of good news to be shared. So I think that is what we can look forward to. Matthew, what do you think? Yeah, I think those are great points. You know, another thing we're watching with respect to COVID is a lot of the deregulation that occurred uh, during the point of time that there was a national state of emergency imposed. Will, will some of those deregulation points stick around? We know that, that telehealth is going to stick around, but what other deregulation uh, changes that were made will providers get the benefit of in the future uh, without COVID? Um, so we, we're watching that and we hope that we see some additional deregulation. Now, a topic that I've had to get up to speed on quickly that you both talked about, um, Matthew, you a lot, which is the shift from volume-based care to value-based care. That's correct. And this, this trend has been going on for a number of years, and it's probably been more recognized in the media stories about it than in the actual uh, conversion of the change in methodologies. But essentially, volume-based care is when providers are paid to do more work. So the more work you do, the more patients you see, the more procedures you perform, the more money you make. And that's historically been how 
providers have been paid, doctors, hospitals have been paid. Now we're seeing a shift to value-based care where you're paid more to do a better job, where higher quality is, is something that you're incentivized to do or at lower cost. So it's not about doing more, it's about doing better and having better results. Um, so that's still basically in its infancy as we are trending that way, but you see large payers, insurance companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, piloting programs so that, that physicians and hospitals are paid a slightly different way that they have been paid in the past. That will help reduce the overall healthcare spend in the country and maybe have a chance for us to focus more on prevention and wellness as opposed to just doing more work for sick people and waiting till they get really sick before we do a lot of the work. Is this tied at all to the transparency and pricing or are they separate issues? I think they're connected now uh, because the government who is the biggest payer of, of healthcare costs in this country, they would like to see um, this shift to reduce their cost. They would like to see a shift in the way that people think about healthcare. And one way that is to make sure they understand what it costs. Mm -hmm. So if you are going to a, a hospital for a procedure, you now have the ability to essentially shop around and see whether you, it's cheaper to do it at an ASC, an ambulatory surgery center, or a hospital, and what that cost to you would be based on your insurance. And that transparency model is being required now by federal law. Health plans and, and providers have to disclose certain information about their costs. So those trends are going together and they're not going to go away. As a consumer, that's really interesting yes. to me. Yeah. Dara, what else on this list? Something that I think Matthew briefly touched upon that is just tremendously important is the role that technology mm -hmm. um, now plays. It is incremental um, in, in growth over the last few years, but now it is such an integral part of our daily lives that it is not going backward. You know, over the last 10, 12 years, it crept in such small steps and then it exploded over the last 12 months. And we have seen telemedicine um, become adopted um, through payer policies. And very interestingly, um, in recent um, testimony before Congress, the nominee for HHS, sec um, the secretary position, actually addressed this. One of the um, congressmen specifically asked him about his philosophy on the adoption of telehealth and also his philosophy on broadband access. And I was very pleased to hear him address how those two concepts fit together. And it's something that we've talked about a lot right. on our podcast because you really have to have broadband access because if you don't have that, we realize that there has been a major deficit. And it's true in both North Carolina and South Carolina in certain areas, particularly our rural areas. If you don't have broadband access, you just have people who are never going to have equitable access to healthcare. And you have to correct that problem if you want people to be able to access the telehealth resources that are now all of a sudden available. So the two have to go hand in hand. And nominee Becerras recognized that, and he recognized that these need to be permanent priorities. Mm -hmm. So I think telehealth and the funding parity for telehealth and payer policies, both at the federal level um, through government payers and also through the um, private payer policies is something that we're likely to see. And some of the deregulation that um, Matthew alluded to um, in granting greater flexibility to healthcare providers is something that's probably going to have permanency beyond the public health emergency. 
Um, I think it's going to be interesting, too, to also see if the flexibility um, with scope of practice um, waivers that we've had um, across state lines will persist mm -hmm. beyond the, the public health emergency. I think they've been so successful um, over the last year, and patients have benefited across state lines because um, providers have had greater flexibility when they're treating patients in North Carolina, when they're still in South Carolina and vice versa, that there's a likelihood, a strong likelihood that those flexibilities will endure. And I think the consumer demand on technology and telehealth is going to force payers and regulators to keep it available and to promote its and expand its use. Because right. once you've done a, a telehealth visit, which I think most of us have done at least one mm -hmm. during the pandemic, you're not going to go back and right. give up that convenience right. um, to go wait in a crowded right. waiting room when you could have a 15 minute telehealth visit with a right. nurse practitioner or a physician. Right. I think that's, that, is, that is the future is now in right. terms of that. And I have to imagine it's better for the physician as well. They're probably more efficient. You know, I've talked to a lot of physicians about it. They were very resistant at some were very resistant mm -hmm. and now they, they love it. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, you know, I, I have, you know, my dermatologist, he spends uh, in his afternoons doing these telehealth visits and he thinks it's the greatest thing he's ever seen. So it's, yeah. it, it's, and it's working very well for the patients. Now, public health, you said public health initiative, and, and when the pandemic hit, Matthew, you were talking early on about, see, we, did, we haven't invested in public right. health enough. Mm -hmm. What do you foresee? Yeah, I, as, I think we're going to see more dollars, more political influence, more education, more mm -hmm. jobs, all of those things. I think there's going to be a massive focus on, on public health. So someone who is my daughter's age, who's almost 16, um, I mean, they're going to be career opportunities in public health in the future that were not that are not present right now. Absolutely. And I think there's going to be a, a much more political uh, focus on it and which mm -hmm. comes with dollars. But I think the average American is going to spend more time thinking about it. Well, we learned the hard way. It's right. importance. Absolutely. And I think something that COVID has brought to the forefront is that we have to be circumspect in how we approach um, health care. And we have to be mindful of so many different aspects of the human experience. And we have to put our money behind all of those concepts and make investments in the human experience so that we can advance the well-being of everyone. One of the things with public health, which is going to be interesting to watch, is its intersection with um, civil liberties and people's rights. Obviously, as Americans, we are very proud to have a lot of rights, more rights than any, almost any other country on the planet. But public health sometimes puts a little bit of a, a dampening on those rights and the political reaction to that, if we can and keep it less strident and less uh, vitriolic, uh, I think that we can, they can coexist, increase public health and maintaining you know, very broad personal rights and civil liberties. Well, this pandemic gives, gives some the fuel to be able to make that claim. Sure, no doubt. Right, because otherwise no it was just a sci-fi novel, novel for many people, right. I think. There's no doubt. I mean, we have states now like ours in South Carolina, North Carolina, that are much more open than states on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's primarily a political issue. Mm -hmm. um, and the infrastructure within those Western states that are, are a little bit different than here. But we're all dealing with the same public health right. crisis. Absolutely. That's the same, no matter where you are. Right. Dara, your background is LLR. Right. right, labor licensing. And so what about licensure, scope of practice issues? That has made your top 10 list. Absolutely. So one of the things that is really interesting at this very moment 
um, just going back to vaccinations, is the role, the expanded role of unlicensed um, individuals in the offering of vaccinations. Um, we now are just in a very interesting intersection where joint orders were offered by DHEC and um, the boards of medical examiners, nursing, and the dental board that allowed retirees and some um, students, medical students, and nursing students, and folks who had certain certificates, including medical assistance, um, to participate in vaccination programs who otherwise would not have been able to engage in practice in our state. And then there was legislative action taken for the duration of the public health emergency that slightly changed um, what DHEC and the, the boards had done. So it's an interesting time in our state to see in a public health crisis how the legislature can kind of modify what the regulatory boards and the public health agency have done and can do. I think that's an interesting trend to watch um, for the next year or so to see how the legislature and the governor can slightly tweak what the other um, arms of the, the government can do and, and are doing. It's also fascinating to see how everyone can work together, how everyone is willing to kind of back up and regroup and bring more people into the tent to say, you know, we were previously not willing to allow you to do these things, but now we're going to let you come in. Most interesting um, in this joint resolution was the expansion of PAs and APRNs, at least in South Carolina, to delegate to unlicensed folks the ability to vaccinate. That has been a hotly contested issue in our state for years, and legislation was passed um, that specifically prohibited their ability to delegate to unlicensed um, folks the ability to inject. That was um, something that was specifically negotiated, that they could not delegate that, and COVID came in, and for the purposes of this um, public health emergency, they are specifically authorized to delegate that. So it's very compelling, I think, to see how in the face of an emergency, there can be a swift about face hmm. of position. And I think it's interesting um, for us to just watch this to see if that's going to soften what previously had been kind of a hardline position on delegable authority of non-physician healthcare providers. We've, we've had a lot of good internal discussion and in getting the benefit of Dara's nine years at LLR, talking a little bit about the policy of why there were certain restrictions. Um, but the more you ask why, and then you in the backdrop of this global pandemic, I think some of the answers don't no longer support having those restrictions. Mm -hmm. And the question is, we're going to obviously fix it for COVID, but what will happen after COVID? And will it be expanded to other non-COVID related injections mm -hmm. or other services? Right. And I think you just have to wait and see. Right. And it's a matter of monitoring and adjusting. Yeah. You know, I was trained as a teacher before I went to law school and back in the way, way back when I was in college, that was the model was monitor and adjust, monitor and adjust. Right. And so I think that is what will, will happen in the regulatory situation as well. People will monitor what happens with COVID and they'll adjust. And there may be some maintained flexibilities with the scope of practice issues, at least with some extent. And it may bleed over into some prescriptive issues as well. I mean, we've seen with 
technology, there's just been such an embracing of different practices that that certainly is going to bleed over Mm -hmm. into clinical practice across the board. I'm hearing this constant theme of all these like transformational changes Mm -hmm. that the pandemic has caused. Now, most of them, I think, for the good of a consumer like myself, you know, right. I agree. Sounds like. Um, Sometimes transformational change happens whether you're ready for it or not. This is another example of it. Right. Right. Life sciences industry. You are on the highly involved with SC Bio. Right, right. And uh, life sciences is becoming a, so, a not so secret growth, explosive mm-hmm. growth area in the Carolinas. Um, so it includes he- healthcare providers, hospitals, physicians, uh, but lo- lots of other type of companies, where, whether they're manufacturers mm-hmm. or designers, drug companies, um, other tech companies mm-hmm. getting involved. Everybody has an idea, a concept, and there are a lot of folks are moving to the Carolinas to roll that concept out and to try it out in the life sciences industry. And we have the backdrop of major universities in our footprint that they are used to, to evaluate these ideas and concepts and products and then roll them out to the market. Very exciting time to be in this industry. I think I read somewhere that it's a $12 billion impact in just South, just Carolina, South Carolina alone. And right. then, you know, yeah. North Carolina is a much larger state. And thousands of life science companies or related life sciences companies. And it's, it's really interesting. And the folks at SC Bio in North Carolina, NC Bio, have done a fabulous job mm-hmm. as a trade association to promote that industry mm-hmm. and to grow it. I mean, in mm-hmm. South Carolina, we've got... Uh, organizations like Nephron and, and right. Luke Kennedy's been an excellent leader for the state and for this this industry. And in North Carolina, you've got the Research Triangle, and its growth has been you know it, legendary over the last two decades. Right. So there's lots going on there. A lot more. We'll we'll have more podcasts about life sciences industries. I'm sure in the future. What's interesting as a parent um, when we are talking to different um, businesses who have these concepts that right. are evolving. I'm imagining that there are going to be jobs oh, yes. for our children yeah. that don't even exist today. Right. Right. Very lucrative careers that will be developed that we can't even fathom right. as we sit here. I actually had a conversation with my daughter, um, who's 13, the other night. She thinks she wants to be a, a physician one day. Um, right now, she thinks she wants to be a pediatric neurosurgeon because she just has a heart for children. And I told her, I said, honey, that's a great idea, but you have no idea what the future is going to hold because this is just burgeoning with possibilities right now. I mean, the world is just evolving so quickly. We have no idea. Some of the ideas that we heard about from the research authority at the very beginning of COVID have turned into folks that you've interviewed right. now right. most right. recently right. Right. and look at um, like Zverse, I think was one of those sure. most recently. Sure, Zverse, and, and and we've got the folks from Vicor, Mako. Mm, they, right. They've made all these changes, and and for the good for their right, company right. And, and for uh, uh, the entire society. Okay, now is that could this be the one topic that's not COVID related, and that's CON? Yes. So okay. CON is is interesting in both states. Certificate of Need Law, and it's a regulatory framework which exists in about thirty states that says in order for you to develop certain healthcare services or build certain healthcare facilities, you've got to get regulatory approval from the state. And so that requires some analysis of need for the service and its potential impact on others in the market. And it's led to a, a, um, essentially a slowdown of development in certain areas. And there could be legal disputes over appeals to CON decisions. 
So it's a somewhat controversial regulatory statutory framework, and there's been changes to it over the years to make it more streamlined. And we expect changes in both states to be proposed, whether they're passed will, will remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting that, that, that CON's designed to create um, higher quality and lower cost, and whether it achieves that goal remains to be seen. But there was a federal CON statute that, that was in place until the 70s, and it got repealed, and, and we'll see what the future of CON in the Carolinas is in the next couple of years. We've got two more on the list and time for only one. So I'm going to, Dara, you pick the last one that we talk about. It's projected continued growth in post-acute care markets or possible increase in antitrust and fraud and abuse enforcement activity under the Biden administration. I think we're going to have to go with fraud, um, the anti-fraud um, I really think this is an area where people are going to have to be careful, um, particularly in the post-COVID realm. Um, we're seeing um, investigations already just with outside of healthcare, with the um, PPP investigation. Sure. We're, we're already seeing some pretty big um, fines being leveled against folks who were maybe not so honest mm. in their application for relief as in employers and businesses. So the investigation for coding compliance issues tends to lag. It tends to take a lot longer. And prior to COVID, um, as our, our team can tell you, it could take up to six years to have a wow. resolution of a coding compliance issue. I think in the next few years, we're going to see a lot of fraud um, investigation and it is it is not going to be fun so folks who have questions about their billing practices or about their coding issues need to have those questions asked and answered rather than taking chances mm. um, because i don't think that this is something that is going to diminish i think it's something that is going to increase um, because i think there will be less of a tolerance um, for abuse because there is a need for transparency. There's been an, such an emphasis placed on integrity and transparency in the billing um, side of things because there's an emphasis on the provision of services where they're needed. So there has to be a, a checks and balances system. I mean, Matthew, is that kind of what I, I you're think, thinking I think too? so. I mean, obviously we have a political change in, in the administration and the, the Democrats tend to be a little bit more aggressive on fraud and abuse investigation, particularly the use of the federal false claims act statute. So we're going to have brand new U.S. attorneys across the country and, mm -hmm. and we suspect some of them will be more aggressive about that. I also think you'll see an increase in federal antitrust enforcement. Um, we've seen that already, even under the Trump administration, certain health care deals were called into question. We've got that going on in the Carolinas now as well. And so I think you'll see more of that uh, under the Biden administration. Well, we covered a lot in this short amount of time. Normally, you guys are the co-hosts. It was enjoyable to interview you both today. But you are two of many on the healthcare team. And I know you guys have been working hard over the past... 10 months now, I guess yes. it's been a year, almost a year, almost a year, almost yeah. a year of the pandemic. So thank you for 
your hard work for being willing to start taking the pulse, yes. right? Yep. This was a new territory, a good thing from the pandemic. Yes, yes. We started there's, the there's several good things. Good, several good things. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this conversation today. Should you have any follow-up questions for either of those two, you can find our contact information on all the social channels and the website for Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. We look forward to you joining us next time. <laughs>